1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20, page 955 in your pew Bible. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the person is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, let me add my welcome to Jake's. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus, and it's great to have you uh, with us this morning. I'm so, so glad that you've chosen to worship here with us uh, at Christ Community. Um, this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at this uh, passage in 1 Corinthians both this week and next week on um, these verses that Jake read for us. And uh, both this Sunday and next Sunday, these messages might just be a little bit longer. So I just want to anticipate that we'll still have you out of here by 1115, but the, the message itself might just take a little uh, longer than usual. Um, well, as we begin, uh, this week, as I was thinking about this text, one of the things that, that came to mind, that one of the things that we learn early in life is the concept of mine, right? I mean, even our sweet little one-year-old Lucy, uh, even before she's learned to speak the word, um, has a very clear concept in her mind when something belongs to her. Uh, for example, she regularly declares the baby monitor to be hers. I have a picture here. Um, I mean, she knows when that baby monitor is, is hers. Um, and, and this isn't something that we as people outgrow. Um, I mean, even, right, we, we grew up, we talk about my side of the bed or my lane on the highway, don't we? I mean, how, how so quickly that little strip of asphalt on a road becomes sort of our sovereign state that if anyone encroaches on our borders, I mean, our lane lines, um, it's, you know, we need to call together the UN Security Council because a travesty has happened. Um, but if there's anything in the world that I have a sense of mine over. It's not my job or my hobbies or, or even my closest friends. It, it's, it's this, my body, right? I mean, this is mine. I mean, what, do you, what do you own if not your body? And, and this gets really personal really quick, doesn't it? I mean, healthcare, reproductive rights, healthy eating. I mean, all of this can get really heated really fast. 
because this is mine. And now if we add sex into this conversation, look out, like it's going to get real, real fast. Because this is mine. But what Paul is going to show us this week and next week is that you don't belong to you. You don't belong to you. And now, if, if you're new here, if this is your first Sunday at Christ Community, let me just say I, I feel for you. Um, because being new at church is, is hard enough uh, on its own. Um, but this has got to be downright a little bit disorienting. I, I, wow, what a Sunday to jump in uh, for your first time. But let me just say as a church, this topic is not our soapbox. This is not the place where we as a church preach down to all the sinners out there. And we only have one soapbox of Christ's community. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in these next couple of weeks, we want to talk about how the gospel speaks into all of life, including sexuality. But it's the glorious, life-altering good news of the gospel that we are about here. And so, so let me just lay out the reasons why, over the next three weeks, we're going to take so much time talking about sexuality as a church. And the first reason is that because we, as a church, we take the Bible seriously. We believe that God has spoken, that he's revealed himself in creation and the world around us, but we also believe that he's spoken in, in this book, his Bible, the Word. He's revealed his will, and so we take this as our authority in life. Now, that may raise some questions for you, especially when it comes to the area of sexuality, because you may think, now, but the Bible is so outdated just sort of generally, but especially when it comes to sex, how can you make this your authority? Well, in these weeks, I, I hope you'll see that no matter who we are, where you're coming from, we all have problems with the way we view sexuality. And so you may disagree with the way that the Bible speaks about sexuality, but I hope we can ask the question of ourselves, are there maybe problems with the way I think about sexuality? And also, I hope you'll see as we spend time in these texts that you might be surprised to learn that some of your deepest held beliefs about sex and sexuality actually originated with the Bible. So that's the first thing. We take the Bible seriously. Secondly, we're talking about this because we teach the whole Bible, not just the parts we like. And and we have to do this, right? If we want a real relationship with God... We have to, to preach the whole Bible. Because think about it. If, if you have a relationship with a friend and, and you only listen to them when they say things you like, and that's not going to be a very deep relationship. That relationship isn't going to last very long. You're not really going to know them if you only listen when they say things you like. So we're preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is our eighth week out of 25, so just kind of give you a sense of where we're at. And by preaching through whole books of the Bible, which is what we try to do at Christ Community a lot, is that we hit every topic. So, you know, we didn't choose that this is going to be the three weeks we talk about sexuality, but this is what Paul is talking about in these chapters, so it's what we're talking about. And if we don't do that, if we don't just preach books of the Bible straight through, we're just not going to talk about the parts that we don't like. So we want to discuss in these weeks God's design for sexuality. And it's something that the Corinthians, the people Paul is writing to, were struggling with deeply. In fact, they were struggling with this in sort of polar extremes. Because some in the church were having sex with prostitutes. Other people were saying you shouldn't even have sex in marriage. So you can't get much further apart than that in terms of perspectives. And Paul wants to know, actually, you're, you're both wrong. 
You see, God's design for sexuality is so much bigger, so much better, so much more beautiful than that. And so as we prepare to dive into this text, I just want to take a minute and, and pray and ask for God's help, the, the power of his spirit to, to be teaching us together this morning. So let's pause and do that. Father in heaven, as we come to a topic and a passage like this, um, all of us uh, bring baggage, myself included. And so I pray that, that this morning your spirit would uh, speak past um, Maybe the barriers, the baggage that's in our own hearts, the, the hurt that we've experienced, the pain that we know in this area. Would you speak life-giving truth um, to us through your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, again, if there's one point that Paul wants us to see, and, and not just this morning, but the next three weeks, really, is that you don't belong to you. You don't belong to you. And this morning we're going to see that this is, is true in the text because, first of all, we, we are more than our desires. Secondly, we are more than just individuals. And then lastly, we, we are more than just matter. We're more than what we, just, what we can see. And, and the, the anchor of last week's message and, and next week's is, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11. And so if you have a, a pew Bible in front of you or if you have a Bible app on your phone, I'd encourage you, I'd love for you to look at these texts with me. Um, Again, it's on page 955 in the Pew Bible. And Paul writes in in verses 9 through 11, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he kind of goes on to describe the unrighteous. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by our God. And so last week, if you were here with us, we discussed sort of the greed sins in verse 10, these sins of defrauding one another, because we take those things seriously here as well. And this week, we're going to be treating all of 9 through 20, but focusing primarily on verses 12 through 20, locating sexual sin in the context of all sin yet highlighting the uniqueness of of sexual sin and what Paul says about it here. But we're going to save a conversation about homosexuality until next week. So now let's keep reading the passage in verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, All things are lawful to me. Notice the quotes there. It's almost like something the, the Corinthians had written to him and that he's countering. So all things are lawful to me, but not all things are helpful All things are lawful to me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So what we find here in these verses is that we are more than just our desires. We are more than just our desires. Now, when I say this text, um, when this text says the body is, is not meant for sexual immorality, does this mean that the Bible is somehow anti-sex or that, that sexual desire is somehow fundamentally wrong? Far from it. I mean, sex was God's idea. He created it. And the Bible is very, as actually very pro-sex in the right context. I love how one Christian writer puts this. He says, the gigantic secret of the joy of sex is this. Sex is good because the God who created sex is good. 
And God is glorified greatly when we receive his gift with thanksgiving and joy and enjoy it the way he meant it to be enjoyed. And I love this. He says, the reason we like sex so much is because it's a little bit like the God who created it. So sex wasn't the original sin. It was part of God's good, glorious, flawless, joyful creation. However, when sin enters into the world... And if, if you want a quick definition of sin, maybe just jot this down. Sin is, is trying to be happy and complete without God. I mean, there's lots of ways the Bible talks about sin, but a quick summary. Sin is trying to be happy and complete without God. When sin enters the world, everything, including sex, becomes bent and turned in on itself and broken. It's that brokenness, that bentness that, that Paul is addressing here. Because you see, some of the Corinthians had a view of sex that is actually still common today. Many of people, many of us hold this in our culture now, that sex is just an appetite. Um, we, we say, well, sex is just another one of our biological appetites, like their need for food, sleep. Um, we all have desires to, to have sex, and to deny those desires would be like to starve yourself. And this is the classic kind of uh, Freudian view, right? That, that all of our problems as people kind of stem from this Um, repressing of sexual desire. And and this is why most Christians who suggest that celibacy for anyone not in heterosexual marriage uh, are are considered a joke. Because a lot of us would really resonate with uh, U.S. Representative Barbara Lee who said an abstinence until marriage program is not only irresponsible, but it's really inhumane. Because in, in our cultural context, That seems as self-evident as grass being green, as ice being cold. But it hasn't always been that way. I mean, in in the history of the world, we are in the vast minority of people who think that sex is merely an appetite. Elizabeth Abbott, in her book, A History of Celibacy, explains that at least for 3,000 years in most parts of the world, celibacy has been far from uncommon and rarely considered unnatural. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that our view in the West is wrong. I mean, because right and wrong aren't just a matter of majority, right? But, but it does mean that our view of sex, just, it, it means it hasn't been self-evident to most people. And we should just note that. And, and even today, despite what we may claim, we treat sex so much differently than our other appetites. I mean, don't we? And when's the last time that you, you turned on the radio and you heard a song about, man, just how the joys of breathing? Um, or, or watched a movie that promised explicit scenes of someone taking a nap? I mean, somehow I just don't think 50 Shades of Falling Asleep on the Couch is going to be a commercial hit. Uh, I mean, sure, some NPR critic would love it, but, uh, you know, other than that. Um, but how many songs and films and books and novels and poems and ads celebrate Praise, glory, and sex, and romantic love. We, we don't treat sex in the same way as we treat our other appetites. And that's why internet pornography is a multi-multi-billion dollar market. This is why sex slavery, prostitution, why these things flourish. I mean, it's why Hardee's and, and GoDaddy can use scantily clad women to sell us hamburgers and websites. See, C.S. Lewis points out that that the Christian sexual ethic of either celibacy or heterosexual marriage marked by unwavering fidelity is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong 
or our sexual instinct as it now is has gone wrong. Lewis says it's one or the other. And then he writes this. He says, now suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate on the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? We just don't treat sex like we treat our other appetites. Now, sometimes we may think that Paul, because he lived so long ago in such a different cultural context, wouldn't understand. We're we're a lot more progressive today, and and Paul's lived a long time ago, and so he doesn't really speak to our context. But but this just doesn't doesn't work because we've really sort of come full circle back to the first century. Because when you begin to study Corinth and the culture of, of the first century, we realize our culture is a lot more like the first century than we might imagine in fact, Corinth was, was famous for their prostitutes. It was like, had the reputation of being like a Las Vegas or an Amsterdam today. In the old city of Corinth, um, the, the, the word Corinth was actually used as a verb, as a euphemism for fornication. Like, I'm going to go get some Corinth. And like the Corinthians, we've made sex both everything and nothing at the same time. It's what we live for, and yet we say it's, it's meaningless, that it doesn't really matter. And that was, it was exactly what was happening in Corinth. It's what we see happening in these verses when the Corinthians are saying, all things are lawful for me, and that food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. Because these statements contain some truth, but they're easily abused. And again, they're probably misquoting Paul or misapplying things that Paul had taught them. Like the Corinthians, we've allowed our physical appetites to control us. But we are not the sum total of our appetites. You were made for so much more. Our bodies were not created merely for the acquisition of pleasure, though it's true that life is full of God-given pleasures that we can and should enjoy. But that's not the sum total of who we are. Our our bodies and everything about us is for God, ultimately, because you don't belong to you. And and we all have desires, right, that that we don't want to become the thing that defines us, that controls us, that's all of our identity, right? So I I have desires for for good bourbon, for barbecue, for McDonald's, but I don't want any of those things to become the central thing about me, the central thing that defines me. So the question is, when is the last time that you denied yourself anything? Because maybe this morning you're sitting here thinking, well, sex is not an active struggle for me right now. That's not the thing I struggle with. But what about like that 11th episode of of Breaking Bad or Scandal like in in one afternoon? Um, Just just one more season, right? Uh, What about the extra helping of food when you're already full? One more glass of wine just to kind of keep the buzz going. You see, if you you want to fight sexual sin, learn self-control in these other areas, and it will help. I I love this. Someone once asked uh, um, Dallas Willard, the great philosopher and spiritual formation thinker, um, how how do you help someone who's struggling with pornography and lust? And Dallas' response was really, it's surprisingly simple. He said, well, just have that person not scratch when they feel an itch. 
I mean, think about that. When, when you feel an itch on your face, on your leg, I mean, do you have the ability in that moment to, if you think about it, to not, to resist the urge to scratch that? And what happens when you do that is you notice that the itch slowly fades. And the point is, is that if you exercise self-control, self-regulation in one area, it builds your self-control muscles in all areas. Charles Duhigg in his book, The Power of Habit, points out that this is why music lessons and sports are so important for kids, not because we're trying to produce the next generation of, of great musicians or athletes, but it builds self-regulation skills. A five-year-old who can follow a ball for 10 minutes becomes a sixth grader who can start his homework on time. This is also one of the reasons why Christians in observing Lent, and we're in that Lenten season, voluntarily give up good things for a period of time. It builds our self-regulatory muscles. So you are more than just your desires because you don't belong to you anymore. And next we see in verses 15 and 16, if you take a look at those, that, that we are also more than just individuals. And Paul writes, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You know, as people, we are communal beings we are made for community. We are made for relationship. And, and it's because we're made in the image of a God who is himself community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The most real thing, the most fundamental truth about the universe is relationship. God himself is relationship. And sex can either destroy community or it can enhance it. And, and here Paul is pushing back on another idea that, that's prominent in our culture, and that is that, that sex is strictly a private matter. Because if, if our culture has any agreed-upon sexual ethic today, it really basically has two rules, right? Consenting adults and, and don't hurt anyone. And other than that, who cares with who you're sleeping with? And, and I have to admit, that's pretty compelling, right? Consenting adults, don't, don't hurt anyone. Seems pretty compelling. But I think there are problems with the idea that sex is, is a private matter only. The American novelist and poet, environmental activist, and farmer, Wendell Berry, writes that sex is not and cannot be any individual's own business. Neither is it merely the private concern of any couple. I love how he puts this. He says, sex, like any other necessary, precious, and volatile power that is commonly held, is everyone's business. And let me just give you two reasons why I think that, that Wendell Berry is right when he makes that point. The, the first is children. Because, because sex has the ability to create new life, it, it can never be merely private. But, but secondly, regardless of whether or not sex produces children, what you do in private shapes your public character. What you do in public shapes, in private, shapes your public character. So, for example, Tim Keller notes that when people use sex merely or primarily for individual recreation and fulfillment, it weakens everybody's ability to live for others. Because in doing that, you learn to commodify people and think of them as a means to satisfy your own passing pleasure. And we see this commodification in, in a number of ways. We, we see it uh, in pornography. And, and in the use of pornography, men and, and also increasingly women consume 
other people made in the image of God for their own pleasure and fulfillment and then discard them when they're done with them. And we, we also see this in the area of body image. I mean, largely due to the, the first reason, there's a constant pressure for both men and women to conform their bodies to the, the shape du jour, whatever that might be, whether it's Kate Moss or Kim Kardashian, Chris Hemsworth, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I mean, the, the pressure comes then with this self-consciousness, self-awareness of constantly thinking about how do I look and in many cases, that leads to depression, anxiety, even exercise and eating disorders. And just this past week, the New York Times ran an article written by Jennifer Weiner, um, a novelist whose books include Good and Bad and, and All Fall Down. And the, 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 the headline had this um, thing to say. It said, great, another thing to hate about ourselves and in the article, Jennifer is lamenting sort of the effects of the latest uh, Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition. And she writes, show me a body part and I'll show you someone who's making money by telling women that theirs looks wrong and they need to fix it. Tone it, work it out, tan it, bleach it, tattoo it, lipo it, remove all the hair, lose every bit of jiggle. Do you see how there might be problems if you try to argue that sex is merely a private matter? Sex is, in this sense, it's deeply personal, but it's never private. It's deeply personal, but never private. This is why God says in, in this passage, it's designed to be something that is deeply uniting. And Paul is quoting Genesis 2.24 when he writes that in this passage, the two will become one flesh. And this is a really good thing in the right context. God has designed sex to be this amazing uniting force. It's how he's designed it to work. But the trouble is that sex does that uniting work regardless of context, which is why in the wrong context it can be so devastating. So whether we want it to or not, sex binds us to other people. And we hear, again, we hear this all over the place in music, don't we? I mean, uh, Grammy winner Sam Smith sings what so many of us have felt so deeply. He says, I, I guess it's true I'm not good at a one-night stand, but I still need love because I'm just a man. These nights, they seem to never go to plan. I don't want you to leave. Will you hold my hand? Oh, won't you stay with me? It has a, an undeniable uniting force. Or, or how about every one of the 200-plus episodes of How I Met Your Mother? I mean, this is a show all about sexual freedom, if you've seen it. But the whole plot of the entire show is finding your soulmate, the person you can spend the rest of your life with. Why is this? Because sex is fundamentally a uniting act. It's the most intimate two human beings can get, and it should be reserved for the most intimate of any relationship and no one says this better, I think, than, than Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful, God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And you must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. 
You see, God never gives part of himself to his people. When he covenants, when God makes covenants with his people, with us, he gives everything. He holds nothing back. And sex is designed to picture that reality, a complete self-giving. And and this is why Paul condemns visiting prostitutes in this passage. He says there's a self-giving uniting happening in those places without any covenant or whole life commitment. And this is why cohabitation and and sex outside of marriage run against the grain of God's design for sex. Because either you will end up feeling overly connected to someone that that you're not really connected to, or you'll slowly disable the feeling of connection altogether, disabling its power so that even someday if you do get married, you're actually less able to commit and trust the New York Times did a, a really fascinating story in this a while back called The Downside of Cohabitation. And in the article, they talk about a number of studies, and this is what it says. It says, couples who cohabit before marriage, especially before an engagement or otherwise clear commitment, tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not. And these negative outcomes are called the cohabitation effect. And then the the article continues, and it shares the experience of one person in the study. Uh, Jennifer said she never really felt her boyfriend was committed to her. She says, I felt like I was on this multi-year, never-ending audition to be his wife, she said. We had all this furniture. We had our dogs, all the same friends. It just made it really, really difficult to break up. And then it was like we got married because we were living together once we got into our 30s. His sex is designed to unite us. And again, you know, Tim Keller is so good here. He says, the Bible says don't unite with someone physically unless you also are willing to unite with that person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. In other words, don't become physically naked and vulnerable to another person without becoming vulnerable in every other single way. Sex is about uniting, about giving yourself to another person in a covenant relationship. So so the question here is, when is the last time that you made it all about you? Because sex is personal, yes, but but it's never private. It always has to do with other people. We are more than just individuals. But our tendency is to make sex all about us. And, And you don't have to call the escort service to make it all about you. Whether it's pornography or withholding sex or demanding sex, and Paul's gonna address that in chapter seven here in a couple weeks. We are by nature and by choice, selfish consumers. That's our default position. We make sex only about pleasure, my pleasure, and nothing else. But God has designed sex as a self-giving, uniting act. And when we make it about me and my pleasure, even in marriage, the relationship becomes consumptive rather than covenantal. But you don't belong to you anymore. You're more than just an individual. Finally, in verses 18 and 20, we get to the heart of Paul's argument here. The heart of the argument that you don't belong to you. So take a look at verse 18. Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And, and Paul's argument here is that we are more than just matter. 
We are more than just a pile of atoms. And in that command, flee sexual immorality, the, the word that's translated sexual immorality, is, it's a Greek word, porneia. And it refers to any sexual relationship outside of heterosexual marriage. And Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, raised the bar on what, that even, what even constitutes sexual immorality when he says that, that even dwelling on, entertaining, pursuing lustful thoughts brings us into this territory of pornea, of adultery. But again, does this mean that the Bible is anti-sex or, or anti-bodies? No. In fact, in fact, the Bible is one of the, the most body-positive books ever written. In Genesis chapter 1, God created us with bodies and called them very good. And I could take you to passages in the Song of Solomon that if we really did the exegetical work and unpacked the poetry, they would make you blush with how vivid descriptions of marital sexual love is on view. I mean, Jesus himself took on a human body forever. Jesus came in a physical body, died in a physical body, and he was raised again with a glorified but still physical human body. When we meet Jesus, it is going to be face to face. Not, not literally or, or, or not figuratively or metaphorically, but literally face to face. The physical is not dirty, but, but we are more than just matter. We are more than just dust. Contrary to those great cultural commentators, the Bloodhound Gang, we are more than just animals, mammals doing it on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> We're more than just animals. So much more. In verse 19, Paul says, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He said that back in chapter 3 of the church collectively, all of us together, but here individually, each one of us is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That In some mysterious, amazing way that God actually, through his spirit, when you trust Christ, place your faith in him, actually dwells within us. And this is why sexual sin is unique in some way. Of course, at one level, uh, sexual sin is just sin like every other sin. And that's why Paul lists it in this list back in verse 9 with greed and slander and all these other things. But in another way, it's, it's different. Because you and me, when we become Christians, actually have the Spirit dwelling within us. And again, I don't know exactly how that works or, or what all that means in its fullest sense. But one thing that's clear from this passage it means that what you do with your body matters. Because you don't belong to you. So whether you're, you're single or married, whether you're attracted to the opposite sex or the same sex, and again, much more on that next week, Paul is clear, you don't belong to you. So glorify God with your body. And, and, and notice it doesn't say, not just behave yourself or, or get as close to the line as you can without going over, you know, how far can I go? This is always the question. Rather glorify God with your body. So the question is, are you running toward holiness? Are you seeking to glorify God with your body? Or are you tiptoeing right up to the line and then sort of shocked when you fall over? I mean, sometimes we act surprised, and I've been here in, in my own life, right? So this is not me speaking to someone who hasn't experienced this reality. We act surprised when we struggle with temptation, right? But then this is the situation. It's like, I, I don't know what happened. I was just really feeling this temptation. And it was late, and we'd had a few drinks, and my roommate was out for the night. And even though I was trying really hard to resist temptation, I just was overcome, and I gave in. Well, yeah, of course, um, right? I mean, in that context, it's like it'd be a, a miracle if you, I mean, something might have been wrong if you didn't give in to temptation in that moment. So, 
fleeing sexual immorality doesn't just mean in the moment, but how are you setting up your life that you're not in these places in the first place? And also to be clear, feeling temptation isn't a sin, but nurturing it is. And I think Martin Luther said this best. Martin Luther, great reformer, says, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making nests in your hair. Temptation in and of itself isn't a sin, but what's what you do with that temptation when it comes? Does it just pass over or do you let it make a nest in your hair? You don't belong to you anymore. You were bought with a price. You wonderfully, gloriously, joyfully don't belong to you anymore. You see, the God of the universe loved you so much that he took on a body. He gave that body over to horrific suffering and death to rescue you. You have been bought with a price. The the, the blood of the God of the universe who made you and loves you more than you can possibly begin to imagine bought you. He chose you. And so if you are a Christian, you aren't who you used to be. You don't belong to you anymore, so glorify God with your body. And let me just say, every one of us has failed miserably in this area, in this room. In, in a room this size, every one of us has been or will be sinned against in this area or will sin against someone else here. We can't escape it. But thanks be to God that we have verse 11. And such were some of you. You may have, that word, it doesn't have to be five years ago, that may have been 35 minutes ago, it might have been yesterday, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When it comes to sexual sin, there's so much shame and so many of us feel so dirty. We, We feel like Lady Macbeth, haunted by the guilt, constantly rubbing her hands, trying to say, out, damn spot, out, I say to no avail. But thanks be to God, that in Jesus, every spot and every stain can be washed white as snow. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you, that you haven't left us to wonder, that you haven't left us confused about how you've designed your creation to work. Thank you for revealing your will to us around this and help us in, in brokenness and humility um, to cling to the gospel and to invite you to shape us in ways that conform to your design because it's there that we find great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.